Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. The uh, Canadian Armed Forces Ombudsman this week let accused the um, accused the federal government and the Canadian Armed Forces leadership of defiance of common sense and stated there has been zero accepting of accountability by political leadership when complaints of sexual misconduct have been and are being brought forward. Gregory Lick is the ombudsman and military ombudsman, and Mr. Lick joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Mr. Lick, thank you very much for taking the time. You were very outspoken to parliamentarians and the CIF leadership in your media conference on Tuesday, and you said in part that sexual misconduct has, quote, moved from crisis to to tragedy. Would you expand on that for us, please? I think, um, uh, well, I did speak also in not simply just sexual misconduct, but any abuse of authority. I think that's one thing that uh, we should remember. uh, It is a bigger crisis and bigger issue than just sexual misconduct, not to diminish the importance of that particular issue for victims in in that case, though. I think the, uh, the issue now is that with these a number of courageous people coming forward and a number of even leaders trying to bring these issues forward to people that we're just not seeing the action that needs to happen. We're seeing review upon review upon review. And that's why I said enough is enough. We don't need any more reviews. We need to take action because people are suffering now. And in fact, from what we are hearing through our complaint line, through talking with people, through talking with military members, family members, civilian members, it, there is a big loss of confidence in uh, in the department. And the grievance system, Justice Fish also said, that it's collapsed under its own weight. It's just simply not working. All these things together are making uh, for moving it from a crisis to a tragedy. And you said also the scandal has put on display a culture that insulates its bad actors and demands silence of its victims. Just to read those words and having heard you say them, that is deeply troubling. And you wonder, how did we get to this point? Well, I think it's um, it's certainly not happened in uh, one month. This is something that I think everybody recognizes has been going on for years, if not decades. Yes, the culture is changing, but it's changing so slowly that, and, and perhaps it's not it's certainly not changing enough to not only protect those victims who come forward, but really support the courageous leaders who try to bring things forward. And you heard um, certainly in the media and in front of parliamentary committees, some of those courageous leaders trying to bring things forward. But at the same time, uh, it, changing culture, I think we can all, all, all um, recognize, 
is a long-term effort. It's not going to happen in, in, in another month type of thing. But I think more than anything, people have to see action, and they have to see action when things, when issues are brought forward. And that's what I, that's where I get frustrated. I get really frustrated when there's a simple words, but no action. Yeah, the frustration was evident. Uh, your office reports directly to the Minister of National Defense, Hartit Sajjan, and you said that this creates a problem. Would you explain to us what it is, what the problem is that's created by the fact that your office reports directly to the whoever the Minister of National Defense is? Yeah, and I think uh, one of the reasons we put uh, a couple of uh, relatively new powers into the draft legislation we are recommending uh, as must-have is to bring issues either to higher political level levels than the minister, such as the prime minister, or ultimately to parliament. Because right now, those, those particular issues that may be brought forward can be stopped if there are vested political interests or, or whatever. We don't want that to happen. My job as ombudsman is to ensure that issues receive the particular um, look and review and exam that they require. And sometimes the, the political interests have an interest in uh, creating or um, really creating their own narrative and in essence protecting the department and protecting the political party. This issue is particular to all of Canadians who are represented by Parliament and not just one political party. You must have been really disturbed that the second-in-command of the Canadian Armed Forces and the Canadian member, at least the commander of the Canadian Navy, were going to go golfing uh, with the former Chief of Defence Staff, Jonathan Vance, who's being investigated by military police over sexual misconduct allegations. Now, Lieutenant General Michel Rouleau resigned as the 2IC after the golfing outing, saying he understood the golf game was a factor in the, quote, erosion of trust in military leadership. Was that a head shaker to you? I think, I think more than anything, I, I mean, they've admitted a lack of judgment in that particular case, and I think we can accept that. Still, at that level, that level of judgment is, is, is problematic, I think. And yeah, for sure. I think what I, think, what I believe more than anything, for people to come forward, they have to perceive and have confidence that issues are going to be, uh, are going to be examined, analyzed, investigated properly. And the perception that the military, well, the reality that the military police reports to the vice chief of defense staff, that creates a, 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 basically a lack of confidence issue for people to come forward, even if there may be no particular influence uh, in reality, the perception is just as important as uh, the reality. You said on Tuesday, Mr. Lick, I want to come back to something you said at the beginning of this interview. You, you, you just touched on it. You said on Tuesday that the sexual misconduct allegation or the allegations have the potential for such negative effect on recruitment as well as retaining military members that there's a risk of a negative impact on national security. Now, Mr. Trudeau has said his government is working hard to change the military culture, which has accepted misogyny. What's your reaction to the prime minister's response, essentially, to your statement? Well, I, I come back to the major point of what I was saying at the press conference, that we want to see action, not just words. And the fact that uh, a lot more people, courageous people, are coming forward uh, to raise the issues that they've faced over the years and decades, uh, that uh, in and of itself is is really showing that um, 
there are and the people that are leaving the department that is really showing that there's they've lost they've lost that confidence in the institution which they loved and they admit that they loved it but at the same time they're not seeing the action at the top levels to see see that they're supported um, the fact that you know basically the the institution is being shown as misogynist as you said um, in the media and in what people are bringing forward as issues you know are they going to be able to recruit the right people serve this country in the future. I think they're going to have problems. I think they do recognize that, but they have a long way to go to fix that culture so that people want to join the institution that serves Canada well. So understanding that and knowing that the first steps that are going to be taken now are significant, is Minister Sajjan sufficiently compromised on the issue of sexual misconduct reporting in the CAF that he really cannot continue in his role as the minister? Well, I mean, obviously, I don't have control over whether the minister serves or or not. And what I did say to that and answer that question, I still I still truly believe it, though, is that that is the prime minister. Obviously, that is the prime minister's decision, but ultimately, it's Canadians' decision. And uh, I think that the the general sense right now is that uh, Canadians um, have lacked really lack confidence, not just maybe in the minister, but also in the institution, I think. And as I just said, you know, it is, will cause problems with recruitment, it's going to cause problems with retention, um, but ultimately Canadians have to decide. Um, and uh, more than anything, what my main concern is to see action coming out of this uh, and not just words. Now, yesterday on this program, you heard about Taliban advances in Afghanistan, threatening the lives of Afghans who acted as interpreters for Canadian troops in Kandahar province. They went out on the front lines of battle with Canadians unarmed, and they saved Canadian lives because of their local culture knowledge and language skills. And we've had Canadian soldiers tell us that, that they saved Canadian lives. Now these interpreters are in danger. Their lives are threatened by the Taliban, who are re-emerging in large numbers and taking over large parts of Afghanistan, and decide they're going to get even with anybody who opposed them. Opposing them was Major General Ahmad Habib. And I just want to read you a few lines of a letter from General Habib, and then you'll meet him. I am Major General Ahmad Habib, a general in the Afghan National Army, where I worked in different army positions in Afghanistan, particularly with the Canadian Armed Forces based in Kandahar from 2006 to 2011. During my five years of joint work with the Canadian military in Kandahar and leading the Afghan Army Brigade, a force responsible for the security of the province to eliminate any threat posed to the people of Kandahar by insurgents, I've worked with several senior Canadian military officers. During this time, I was awarded a Medal of Meritorious Service by the Canadian government, an honor I will always remember. In addition, the Canadian government, particularly the Canadian Minister of Defense, kindly provided me with an opportunity to join the Canadian Forces College, CFC, in Toronto, where I successfully completed my studies and graduated in June of 2015. When General Habib returned to Afghanistan from Canada, that's when the threats began. He writes, I started to receive death threats by insurgents against myself 
and my family members. So let's talk to Major General Ahmed Habib and to Mark Campbell, Major Mark Campbell, who made me aware of General Habib. Major Mark Campbell served for 34 years in the Canadian military, for many years in the Princess Patricia Canadian Light Infantry based in Edmonton. He, as most of you know, uh, lost both legs in an IED attack in Afghanistan, and he considers General Habib a brave ally and a friend to Canada. First of all, Mark, thank you for coming back on the program. You made me aware of General Habib in February of this year, and that's the first time we talked with the general and with you. Thanks for coming back. Oh, glad to be back, Roy. It's good to, it's good to hear your voice. Well, good to hear yours, Mark, and let's hear the voice of, of General Ahmed Habib. General Habib, how are you, sir? Hello, good afternoon, uh, Green Show and uh, Major Campbell. I hope you all are doing well and safe from COVID-19. My regard to uh, Canadian chief. Thank you, sir. How are you, General Habib? How are you? How are you keeping? I'm I'm good. You're very worried about your safety for your for yourself and your family, aren't you? Yes. I know your son is there with you, and your son uh, is, is translating for you. And yeah, uh, yeah. We if you if you wish to include your son, uh, put him on the phone. We can do that as well. Okay. Hello, sir. Hi. How, what's your name? Uh, I'm Mustafa Habibi, sir. Hi, Mustafa. Tell us about... Got, I'm, I'm well. How are you, sir? I'm doing good, sir. Mustafa, tell us about uh, the threats that your dad, you, and your family are living under. Uh, yes, sir. We started uh, to receive updates by insurgents against our family, so now it's very critical situation in Afghanistan for my family members, and it's a big risk here. Uh, so my dad protected a lot of lives, and uh, he's uh, he works shoulder to shoulder with Canadian people. So we are kindly requesting to save our family life, sir, yeah. from Canada government, sir. Tell us about the threat that you're living with. Have the Taliban and the insurgents directly targeted you and told you they will kill you? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. On 23rd June, sir, uh, my father's secretary, uh, he got uh, attacked from a uh, tourist site, sir. He's still in the hospital. So we live mobile life, sir, like changing our location every other night and limited contact and movements in the city to protect yeah. ourselves and our family members, sir. Every Staying two, always at home. Every two nights you change. Back very negatively on our education, sir. Yeah. As we are young, sir, and it's a big risk for us. Let me uh, speak to Mark Campbell. Uh, Mark, as you hear this and you consider... General Habib, not only to be an ally, uh, but a friend. And I just one line from his letter is, I was constantly reminded by my Canadian colleagues 
as a vital partner and professional Afghan military officer who played a critical role in the protection of Canadian soldiers and reducing their casualties in the battlefield. He did all of that, didn't he? Absolutely, he did. And, uh, you know, it is, it is, it's heartrending to me to, to hear Mustafa, his son, speak of, of the danger that his family faces every single hour, every single day, where they're forced to move every two nights and, and, and live a life out of, uh, you know, on a mobile life in, in, in Kabul, running from threats. I mean, to, to hear that, the, you know, the general's principal secretary was, was, was uh, injured in an ambush just several days ago while the, the Taliban were closing in on General Habibi is is indicator enough uh, in and of itself uh, of the degree of, of, of incredible threat that they are living under and and it just it it blows my mind it boggles me that the canadian government will not lift a finger when we've got a thousand refugees or immigrants coming into canada on a daily basis if you crunch the numbers it works out to about a thousand a day coming into this country and we can't we just can't make the arrangements for some reason to save the lives of, of, of Canada's principal ally in Afghanistan for the five years that we were there in combat, and we can't seem to lift a finger to to, to provide some sort of reciprocal relief to him and his family. It just it, 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 I, I just can't figure it out. Mark, tell us please what the general did in battle with his with his brigade. What he did, what he actively did in order to safeguard Canadian soldiers who were fighting alongside him. What did he do? Well, first and foremost, he provided his own brigade, his forces, to work shoulder-to-shoulder with the Canadian forces, often leading um, with the Afghan, putting an Afghan face on on coalition operations. So, first and foremost, General Habibi provided um, his soldiers to work alongside our soldiers and often to take the most dangerous, most precarious of positions within the organization, which was to lead these sorts of operations, to be the first ones through the door, so to speak. So um, absolutely critical. We we could not have operated in Afghanistan without the Afghan National Army um, working alongside us and 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 working with us very closely. I mean, my job as the operational mentor and liaison team leader for Panjway in 2008 was exactly that to to provide on the job training to the Afghan National Army in combat so that they could work more closely with Canadian Armed Forces. And uh, we worked very closely with our Afghan allies and. And and we depended on them, you know. We we, we trusted them uh, with their lot with our lives, and 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 they in return trusted us. And 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 to have that trust now, in a sense, betrayed in the larger picture, when our former ally needs our help, and 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 here we are standing there twiddling our thumbs. It just, oh man, I don't even I can't even begin to tell you how frustrating I find. Well, you know, I'm, I'm I was reading the letter from uh, General Habibi, and, and, and party writes that he had contacted uh, the Canadian government, and they had said that they would forward his plea to come to Canada to the Immigration Department, which is ridiculous, and then he had to do paperwork, and then he never heard back from them. Uh, Mustafa, have, has, has your family recently been in touch with the, with the Canadian government? Have you tried to persuade them to bring your family to Canada? Uh, yes, sir. Uh uh, we haven't uh, still received any positive answer. We have contact to Ambassador of Canada in Kabul. We have sent emails to Prime Minister office and um, uh, Mr. Uh, Justin Sordo and uh, many our best friends, sir, like uh, 
more than more than 15 to 16 generals uh like uh, many of them are proudly serving in canada government so sir uh, but but we haven't received any positive answer they are positive about general habibi and they want him to be there because of his security problem but we haven't received any positive answer from immigration officer we have contact we went to india because of this situation we stayed there for 6 months we stayed there for 6 months and again uh, we had no choice and we haven't got any positive answer and we came back to afghanistan and we are still living mobile life and changing our location sir and sure go ahead yes. go ahead mustafa go ahead and there is a lot of risks uh, here which we are facing which we are facing sir and for general habibi and his family sir like we are suffering from all the situation yeah, i i understand i hear i hear it in your voice and and i know this i know it from your story mark is there any doubt at all any doubt whatsoever the general habibi and his brigade saved canadian soldiers from being repatriated and their remains being driven down the highway of heroes no zero i mean general habibi was instrumental in canada's successes in afghanistan period that's all there is to say about it and 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 the notion that we in canada can't repay his his personal risk and uh his acceptance of risk in order to help canada and we can't repay him by bringing his family to canada as immigrants i mean i find it unconscionable i mean we should be disgusted with ourselves and embarrassed uh not internationally we should be made pariahs for our inability to to basically um fulfill our obligation to finalize our obligation to our afghan allies it's it's ridiculous and quite frankly i'm ashamed of of my canadian association when uh, my canadian citizenship when 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 i when i when when i know these people i work with these people i risk my life with these people uh broke bread with these people and we are reneging on what should have been a, a reciprocal sort of arrangement and uh, mark does it does it does it surprise you mark does it surprise you i mean it surprises me because we're not talking about even if we were talking about a thousand people that wouldn't matter as far as i'm concerned and as far as many um military members who served in afghanistan are, are it concerned it doesn't surprise me Roy, that the current government really doesn't care it doesn't surprise me at all they're fixated on a fall election they're fixated on saving their own skin when we speak specifically about the minister of national defense i mean i've written to him i've tried calling him quite frankly all he cares about is saving his own skin in his current position as minister of national defense he seems well, to have one way to do that one way to do that mark is to is to bring the general to canada because he served with the general i know they know each other and yet we've got a minister of national defense who doesn't really seem to care about his reciprocal obligations to his former afghan allies Let me, let me I mean, do this. Let me do this, Mark. I, I, I can't. I, I'm a loss for words to describe how disgusted I am with the situation. Yeah, um, Mustafa, what is it your dad, your father, and your family want to say to the Prime Minister of Canada? What What do you want to say to the, to Mr. Trudeau? Sir, uh, we are requesting 
to uh, pay uh, a hit to this issue and help us and my family members by providing as a refugee status in Canada, sir, because we are suffering from security situations, sir. Yeah. Well, I, I think the, the majority, the vast majority of Canadians would want you here because your dad and his brigade fought alongside our Canadian soldiers and saved Canadian lives, Canadian military lives, and received the Medal of Meritorious Service from the Canadian government. Um, Mark, it'll be a stain on our, on our national and international reputation if anything happens to the general's family. Absolutely, Roy. And, I mean, the clock is ticking. The clock's been ticking here for months. Yeah. And, and our, you know, we are, our resounding silence uh, in response to this is, it, it speaks volumes about it does. Canada. Mark, I thank you so much for, again, making me aware of General Habibi. Uh, Mustafa, please tell your father there are many, many Canadians, including uh, Major Campbell and myself, who feel so strongly that your family belongs in this country. A lot of people working for you. Don't lose hope. Thanks. Thank you for joining us from Afghanistan. Thank you very much uh, from your kind radio show, sir, and Canada government, and dear Sir Mark Campbell, sir. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. The Lavla and the Wii. Um, he felt he was doing good things, <laughs> and I think there just uh, seemed to be a little bit of a, of a blindness uh, to the possibility that there was any kind of issue there, although uh, he did recognize that there was a recusal, recusal issue in this later case. And she found him guilty, she being Mary Dawson, the former Ethics Commissioner, Parliamentary, and he being the current Prime Minister of Canada, Justin Trudeau. It was Mary Dawson who found him guilty of ethics violations concerning the uh, Bahamas vacation. Oh, sorry, vacations. Yeah, but uh, Ms. Dawson says his heart was in the right place. Makes it easier for the surgeons if you ever need help, if your heart is in the right place. <laughs> Where's this guy's heart? <laughs> I can make these jokes because I am a heart patient, okay? I can make these jokes. We opened up green and we found what we've long suspected. He hasn't got a heart. Oh, stop it. <laughs> stop that. My goodness. Are you laughing, Michelle? Trying not to. <laughs> Sometimes, I don't know if there's smoke wafting in here from the other room, <laughs> where the young people live, that is affecting me. But once in a while, I just kind of go sideways. How are you? I'm fine, Roy. And you? Just great. Good to talk to you. Good. Michelle Simpson is a former Liberal Member of Parliament, of course. She was the seatmate to Justin Trudeau in Parliament. And she is, most importantly, a member of our Beauties and the Beast gang. And we have to uh, have another Beauties and the Beast session 
in the very near future. A proud member, Roy. Proud member, yes. And and we're proud that we're all together because we, we talk to one another. We By the way, folks, we actually communicate off the air as well as on the air. And uh, usually that started by Linda, who is determined we're going to have <laughs> a lunch. And I don't know why I find that funny, but I've known Linda for 30 years, too. Anyhow, Michelle, I, uh, I was thinking about you earlier in the week when I saw the story, and I'm just reading Canadian Press. Liberal MPs have been using parliamentary funds to pay for services from companies that provide two of the governing party's most important digital campaign operations, and that's also run its uh, powerful voter contact database. An examination of expenses filed in the House of Commons shows 149 Liberal MPs, or 97% of the caucus, made payments out of their office budgets to Data Sciences, Inc., founded by a close friend of Justin Trudeau. So when I read that, for some reason I thought of you. It just came to mind. You know, um, office expenses, um, expense spending, where you spend it, how you spend it, and who finds out about it. So let me begin before we start talking about your experiences, and not everybody's heard the story. Is, in your view, Parliament a place where expected ethical behavior is in fact followed and respected by all MPs, well, at the outset, perhaps, um, or is it mostly a place where ethics are, and the word I've been using recently, flexible? Well, Roy, uh, flexible is one term. I find that, or in my opinion, most people that run for office do so for the right reasons. And I've come to the conclusion, you know, having been there, done that, and watching it transpire, that I, I really think that some individuals' values and ethics are more easily undermined than others. And the opportunity exists in Parliament, yes? Absolutely. And they give you, they give you permission sometimes overt and sometimes tacit, to take advantage of it. Do you know, when, when you just said that, that reminded me of the story that came out of the UK about... Tom Harper? Uh, I, I don't remember whether... It wasn't one person. It was when they had the, their expense spending scandal. Yep. Is that was was that was that Tom Harper? Yeah, and we were uh, you had us both on the air at the same time. Oh, that's time. right, the, the British MP. Yes. Yeah. See, the memory's going too, uh, and <laughs> <laughs> and 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 he had. Uh, you tell me what he said. I don't want to get into for no, more trouble here. No, basically, what he said was they were given full permission because they earned it. Yeah. So they, they earned the right to abuse. Yeah. taxpayers' money. What what happened was they had a caucus meeting, and uh, the conservatives did, and then the other parties did, or they all did, and they were told by their leaders, look, we haven't been able to pay you as much money as you should be earning, so what we're going to green light is that you take your expense money and you spend it on the things that you want for yourself. So one British MP built a moat for his uh, castle. That I remember. Right? Remember that one? Yes. There, there were so many that, that, that spent lavishly and wildly at the taxpayer's expense, and then they were eventually all found out, and so, cause several went to jail. Many others were not reelected, and it caused a real stir. That made me think of 
when you said that, that made me think of that. Um, when you when you hear this, we'll talk about expenses in a second. When you hear read the story, heard the story about the MPs using parliamentary funds to pay for services from companies that provide two of the governing party, Liberal Party's most important digital campaign operations, 97% of the caucus made payments out of their office budget to Data Sciences Inc. founded by a close friend of Justin Trudeau. What was your reaction? Good for the 3% that didn't do it, because that happened to me, and I was one of the 3% that wouldn't do it, would not authorize an expense on my budget for something that I didn't feel right, I wasn't involved in, I didn't get to decide, and it was for uh, what they call liberal list. And I thought, you know what? This really stinks. So I wouldn't do it. So I guess, actually, I make myself sound like a renegade or a uh, salmon swimming upstream, Roy. But I, I just, there was no way I could do that, participate. And then they had where uh, if, a, if a member overspends and you're found to overspend, you are responsible personally for that money. So what would happen is before the end of the fiscal year in March, you know, they'd have a meeting. Well, who overspent? Who can help contribute by picking up some of their uh, office expenses on theirs? It drove me insane. Yeah. You're not a renegade. You just believe in being ethical. <laughs> well, I, maybe that does make you a renegade in that place. I know. <laughs> as, as far as parliamentary work goes, what, what do you think? Of, what do you think of this line? And as the story continues in the Canadian press, the party denied, however, that MPs' office budgets were paying for the two database services to help identify voters and issues into a run-up to a general election expected this fall. Um, I still am a lady, and I can't use the words, but I find that uh, absolutely incredible and unbelievable, having lived it myself. Yeah, and it's amazing that they actually have the temerity yep. to run that past the people of Canada and expect us to believe it. I really mean this. I It's an honor to know you and the person you are and the ethical standards you live by and you expect from those around you, Michelle, you make the room a better place. Thank you, Roy. But I didn't do... (laughs) That's just who I was. And for my tenure, it didn't do me a lot of good. But but for you, bringing this story forward and allowing me to tell people what's really happening has has really been an honor share with us please many people haven't heard this yet others will remember some of it and if you remember it all i know you'll want to hear it again and there's a component that i hadn't heard about until about two days ago share with us what you did as a first term member of parliament that got you into very hot water with the liberal party leader and his party henchpersons uh the sin was simply honoring a promise I made to my constituents when I ran, and that was that I would be accountable for the money that I spent. What I can control, because one MP can't control the party, but I could control my spending. I could show them how their money was being spent. And uh, so I was able to fulfill that promise. Uh, The personal cost was kind of hefty, but it wasn't deadly. Um... 
I was gagged. I was no longer allowed to speak. Once the, at first it wasn't bad. Once the, it really became evident that this was something that could uh, change the, the way politics is done, I was punished. So I was gagged. I wasn't allowed to speak in Parliament, which is absolutely absurd because that's my, I have to be the voice of my constituents. Um, I, I lost uh, the committee that I applied for. When you get elected, you can apply for a committee. And my first choice was access to information, privacy, and ethics, because it's something that I truly believe we could work on. Uh, I got ripped out of that committee. Uh, see, see, that was what I hadn't heard. Oh. I didn't know that you were removed from the committee. And the cardinal sin that you committed that got you into trouble with the party leadership was that you posted your expense spending, the public monies that you spent, you posted them online, and that f- just flowed against the grain. And it probably comp- started to compromise uh, a lot of folks. And they didn't want you to do that. And they told you to stop. Told you, ordered you to stop. Yeah. The party leader. I got called into his office. And I told him, I, I couldn't, you can't put the genie back in the bottle, nor do I want to. And then they, they offered you a bribe. Yes. Oh, yeah, when all else failed. I also, when I was thinking about the committees, I helped found with five members, and it was uh, the uh, Conservatives, NDP, and Liberal. Five members of the three parties formed a uh, committee for palliative care, compassionate care, because we were looking into the, you know, the right to die with dignity. Right. And I was one of the founding members. They ripped me out of that. So they ripped you out of the committee that you were a founding member of. Yeah. Because you had posted your expenses online, and you wouldn't stop because you said your constituents need to know what you spend your money on, and you suggested to them that they actually follow suit instead of telling you to stop. And you paid a... T- I had no idea they'd kicked you out of the committee or ripped you from the committee. No, and they put me on... Uh, I was shifted from there to status of women. It was a privilege to serve there, but it... I, I really thought, and I, the chairman of the ethics committee was Paul Zabo, who I had the utmost respect for. He was a liberal. And he thanked me for my service. And he felt really bad. He had no say, because it was the leader's office. Yeah. So, Michelle, tell us what uh, can happen and does happen with travel passes. With which passes? Travel passes. Oh, they give those out like uh, chits at a party. And what are they for? Oh, to, you can travel here. They give you. Um, but the whole the idea, though, isn't the idea that you get to travel from your constituency to to Ottawa? That's the that's what they're supposed to be for, right? Yeah. Exactly. They gratuitously give every member, or did then, uh, and I'm sure they do even more so, uh, a trip to Washington. They give you the rail pass that's good for business class anywhere via goes. Uh, but then if you want to take your spouse, you can go regular coach instead of business and take your spouse along for free. So, so you can make a decision to have the taxpayer... So let's say you want to go to Vancouver Island once we, yep. we can travel again. Well, we can't travel now, right? Yep. So, so you want to go to Vancouver Island on the Transcontinental, 
And um, so you have a business pass just in case you're going by yourself. But if you want to take your spouse or a friend or a significant other with you, you trade in that business pass and then they'll give you, at the taxpayer's expense, you get to take your significant other, but you go coach. Absolutely. Supposedly. Or they, they pay for me as the MP. And if we won't both want to go business class, I pay. But it, it was absolutely ridiculous. I, in fact, my spouse was really upset as a taxpayer. So I was between a rock and a hard spot. <laughs> yeah. So the, as you said, the, the majority of people go there. They're elected. They have the best of intentions. But the system, and think of what the ethics commissioner has decided on in the last few years, or the two ethics commissioners. Um, the, the system is so entrenched that it's, it's, self, it's a self-perpetuating, am I correct here? Absolutely. Challenge of ethics constantly. And there's no desire to change it. It would be so easy to change it, but nobody really wants to. Because deep down, the leaders of the parties know that they're going to have some people that are going to take advantage. So if they make it, quote, legal for everybody to do it, it's, it's the right thing to do, according to them, okay. not according to me. So if we go back to your initial cardinal sin of yes. posting your expenses online and letting your, your constituents know how you spent your expense money, their public funds, you were called into the leader's office, and the leader told you to cut it out, and you said no, and then they offered you, if I remember this correctly, yep. uh, a, a wonderful office with its own bathroom. With a private washroom. Yep. Yeah. If you'll just stop being honest. Cut it out, Michelle. Stop being honest. Well, I didn't think it, at, at, they made it into such a story. It became, it wasn't just about my constituents. It was about Canadians seeing how. Yeah. The MPs spend money. Yeah. So, uh, you know, but there was no, uh, I'm proud of what I did. I'm proud and of you, I'm too. very proud of what I did. I'm proud of you, too, and so are the people listening to this program. And we do know that they're correct when they say the MPs' office budgets were not paying for two database services to help to identify voters and issues into the run-up for a general election expected this fall. We no, know, and that's wrong. We know their fingers were crossed behind their backs when they were saying that. You're an amazing person. You're a wonderful person. I wish you'd stayed in, in, in politics, but I understand why you couldn't. So we continue on this program with questions Canadians ask ourselves now about our history, our present, and our future. Indigenous, anti-Semitic, Islamophobia, treatment of people of color, all these issues. Now, my guest immigrated to Canada when he was a child as a member of a visible minority, and he became a very successful member of provincial and national government, the Premier of British Columbia and the Federal Minister of Health. What was his life like when he was growing up? Did he experience racism, intolerance, and uh, how much racism, intolerance does he see now? What should our national, what must our national conversation focus on? I call on Ujjal Dossange for these issues on a regular basis because I really appreciate his thoughtful replies. We've had conversations on and off air. And Premier, thank you for agreeing to come and talk about this. How are you, sir? Good to be with you. What are your thoughts about the challenges and the issues facing Canada 
and Canadians today. The dark side of historic figures in the creation of Canada, the policies of removing children from Indigenous families and forcing those children to attend residential schools where we're finding many lost their lives. There are the declarations of systemic racism and intolerance within the Canada of 2021. What are your thoughts on how these issues, well, what are your thoughts on these issues and how should they be addressed? Well, I, I believe that, I believe, you know, we have um, uh, a very difficult history, um, uh, particularly with the First Nations, and um, we are seeing uh, the evidence of that history being literally unearthed um, before us. Um, and I know that um, there is impatience. Um, uh, in the ranks of the First Nations in particular and other people in Canada, that we need to deal with these issues um, more quickly. Um, but the fact is that um, these kinds of issues are, are so intricate to resolve, so difficult to resolve, it takes time. I'm not suggesting they should have patience. Impatience um, is a good virtue if you're looking for change. Um, but change is not going to come overnight. Um, you know, um, I mean, I came to Canada in 1968. It was um, uh, a progressive country then with its darker chapters of its history. Um, it is more progressive now, but it is, you know, we haven't dealt with all the blemishes and all the injuries that we've done to each other and that in particular we've done to the First Nations. Uh, that that needs to be done. Um, I heard that may have been um, the former cabinet minister, Mr. Trudeau, saying um, the, that transformative promise that Mr. Trudeau made um, should be implemented. I agree. Um, but it's not going to happen overnight. It's tough. The The overall issues that we hear discussed about Canada. Um, the questions about the rise in anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, systemic racism. What about those issues? Well, when you, you know, when you, when you live in a world where you have, um, you've had the um, Afghanistan war, the Iraq war, and you have... Uh, the continuing um, battles um, in the Middle East um, um, between Israel and Hamas, and you have, um, you know, those are very, very difficult issues. And we now have a much smaller world than, than we had before. And our loyalties aren't necessarily to uh, always to the country that we live in, uh, because there are religions, there are ideologies, um, or there is identity politics, and all of those issues sometimes uh, take us away and take our focus off uh, the issues that face us in this country, and our response to our own issues becomes muddled because we become affected by what's happening 10,000, 15,000, 2,000 miles away. Um, and you know, it is extremely unfortunate that, that uh, you know, after what happened to uh, the Jews in, in Europe um, during the Second World War, 
that anti-Semitism continues to raise its head again and again. Um, that means that we as a society are failing. But we also know the world around us is failing, and, and we, we don't live on an island anymore. Um, countries are so interconnected, news are interconnected, knowledge is interconnected much more than before. Therefore, what we do is also interconnected much more than before. Um, Islamophobia is the same. I mean, you know, you have had so much um, of what happened in Syria and Iraq and other places, ISIS and the like, and 9-11. And some of us uh, react to that uh, irrationally as do other people to other things. And, and that's not to exclaim, explain Islamophobia, that is to simply say uh, it is there and we need to deal with it. We need to have rational responses uh, to issues that we face, not irrational responses. Premier, I receive emails on a regular basis. I recognize some of the writers as listeners who've been corresponding with me for a long period of time. And I recognize them as rational people who have often well-thought-out positions, maybe not identical to mine, but that doesn't matter, yeah. well-thought-out positions, and, uh, and they're, I consider them to be genuinely uh, thoughtful people just based on my email exchanges with them. And what I see is, repeated, I'm paraphrasing, of course, there are millions of good people in this country people of goodwill from all backgrounds, all races, ethnicities. We have to, the best way we can move forward is to begin with that dynamic, understanding that it exists, that there are millions of good people of goodwill who are prepared to move forward together. That's not always accepted as being uh, um, a cornerstone for national debate. What do you think of that? Well, that, that I think is increasingly a problem because um, I was just talking to an old colleague of mine, a former colleague who is still in government in, in British Columbia um, just the other day, and he said to me, as you know, he said the, the political world isn't the same when you were here in, in D.C. He says um, there are people who increasingly now believe that if you don't think the way they think, you're either an idiot or a racist or a fascist or whatever else. Um, and and that, I think, is the, the intolerance uh, of differences of opinion. And to begin to see differences of opinion um, as something wrong and sort of color those differences of opinion by your own feelings and what you may be going through, um, I think that that's increasingly a problem. We are, uh, if you disagree with me, I, I, I shut you out. And, and that's happening more and more. Um, and then despite the vast majority of uh, Canadians being rational and receptive and caring, the impression you get is that that. Um, there's a huge degree of intolerance because those are the loudest voices you hear. I uh, had a conversation on air years ago with a French-Canadian senator, 
And we were talking, I think it was during the Charlottetown Accord debate, or maybe one of the Quebec referendum, referenda, I don't know, I can't remember the circumstance, but we were talking about getting along together. And this fits into, I think, into the overall picture. And, and he said, look, Mr. Green, if you were to take an Anglophone, because it was Anglophones and Francophones who were challenging one another at that time. If you were to take an Anglophone and a Francophone who've never talked to one another, don't know each other from, you know, from, from Adam and Eve, they don't speak a word of each other's language, and you drop them off on a street corner in a large city full of people they've never met before, and they have no idea where they are geographically, and you give them a location that they need to get to. They will find a way to make that happen cooperatively. I've never forgotten that. And that's that's absolutely true. I mean, you know, in in difficult times, Canadians do come together. Um, as we've seen, our response to pandemic has been generally uh, quite collective. Um, and without, uh, I mean, there are difficulties, but without much difficulty, we've been able to pull together. Um, you know, when when the need arises, Canadians do come together. Um, but I think sometimes what happens is that you look at Twitter and you look at Facebook and you think that is what the world is about. I don't know whether uh, millions of Canadians ever see Twitter or Facebook. I'm sure there are huge pockets of our population that, that don't go to Twitter or Facebook every day. Um, I can tell you I probably wouldn't be on Facebook or Twitter had I not been a member of Parliament when sort of this came into vogue. Um, my staff set it up and I have it. Um, I, I go to it less and less and less because I find that it's, a, it's like an echo chamber. And we're all sort of talking to ourselves uh, or people like ourselves. Uh, I, I'd much rather read the newspaper. Yeah. Or listen to a radio talk show. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> Premier, what is the role of politics? What is the role of government, provincial, federal governments, in these conversations, these national conversations we're going to have, we're having now, we're going to continue to have. And what do you make of the um, removal of statues, the arbitrary removal, the tearing down of statues of historic figures? Does that help? Does that do nothing to further the conversation? What are your thoughts? Well, I think in terms of politicians, um, you know, if if you're not leading or actively involved in the important debates of your time um, and you don't take clear positions on those issues, you really have no business being in politics. Um, and whether it's the issue of the bodies that are being unearthed of uh, residential school children or uh, the toppling of the of the um, statues. Um, I think those are issues that uh, are very very important. Um, on the um, on the statues, uh, my perspective always is that uh, you got to remember history, learn from history. You can't be erasing history. And in fact, uh, you know, I, I know the argument on the other side is that, uh, you know, we shouldn't be um, celebrating those that we now find 
to be wrong. And they were wrong then, but they weren't considered wrong then, obviously. Uh, and now we um, have come to a different understanding, and we believe that they were wrong, and sometimes they were cruel. Um, but by erasing their uh, statues from the landscape, uh, you're not going to erase that history, and it is important for people to know that history. And, uh, you know, let those statues stand as, as instruments of understanding our past, good, bad, or ugly. Um, I can tell you, if you, if you want um, saints in public life, um, you wouldn't have a single individual active in public life because nobody is a saint. We're all human beings. That's right. We are. In 30 seconds, I wish I had more, about 45 seconds, I, I should have asked you this at the beginning. Do you run into intolerant people who, who are intolerant toward you because of your ethnicity, because of your personal background, because of your race? You know, okay, occasionally it happened. Um, uh, when I first came to, came to Canada in, in the 60s, um, but for some reason, I uh, somehow was able to avoid it. I mean, there were incidents, um, minor incidents, um, sometimes slightly more serious. Um, but but really, um, I was able to avoid it somehow. But I know racism exists. I've you know, as a lawyer, I, I dealt with a lot of people who had complaints about racism. I know people in the community who have had very uh, difficult issues uh, with racism. Um, but once I became a politician um, in British Columbia and, of course, across the country later on, um, I had nothing but goodwill from even from my opponents. Okay. Um, Premier, and thank you for uh, not holding my uh, rather aggressive interviewing style against <laughs> against me the first time we Good talked. Good to talk to you. You were great. You were, I asked you to give me more time, and you did. You gave me another 10 minutes. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.